Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. We have an exciting episode today as we just launched a flash sale of Rosé Champagne. We're excited to share this collection with our users um, and dive into a little bit of the highlights and why we think it's a great investment um, to feature on The Vent platform. And later on in the episode, we'll have Andrew Shirley, who is the editor of the Knight Frank Wealth Report. We're excited to sit down with Andrew and talk about the assets around the world that higher net worth individuals are focused on um, and where wine and whiskey played a uh, outsized role in 2021. So we're excited to dive into that with Andrew. But first, let's turn it over to Billy to discuss the Rosé Champagne collection and some of the highlights for that offering. Yeah, awesome. I'm really excited to to dive into this collection, it is only our, our second flash sale. Um, for those of with have been with us for a while, we had a um, flash sale on Christmas of Petrus. So today, yeah, we're launching a collection of rosé champagne for multiple vintages, only a thousand shares at $41 a share. So um, $41,000 total collection. And yeah, we're really excited. It's going to go fast. Um to really dive in like why rosé champagne and why um you know we're kind of doing a smaller collection with it is first champagne overall had a a really great year in 2021 in the secondary market there was growth across the category and for those who don't know predominantly the the sales in secondary market trading in champagne has traditionally been uh for white champagne and this is for multiple multiple reasons. One is there's just a lot more white champagne made um, for many years um, due to the harsh conditions of growing grapes in Champagne. The red grapes didn't actually ripen well enough to have the skins be used in the making of rosé champagne. In um, the way rosé champagne is made, it, there are various ways. There's traditional uh, rosé making ways, whether it be like Sanyer. Um, bleeding some of the juice off of red grapes or leaving the skins in contact with uh, the juice for a little while. Uh, but champagne is unique in the fact that it can actually blend two base wines that are fermented and finished together to make a champagne or a rosé. So this means that they can make a white wine and a red wine, and then they'll put a little bit of the red wine in with the white wine, and then they'll put it into the bottle for secondary fermentation. Uh, so what this means though is to make that red wine, you need to properly write Pinot Noir. And that didn't typically happen in uh, Champagne just because it's in Northern France um, every year. Um, with global warming, we are starting to see a little bit more, um, but traditionally there's just been very little Rosé Champagne made because the red grapes never really ripen to the point of usability. Um, so that brings us to this collection. Rosé Champagne, it did see an overall kind of increase in excitement um, along with champagne as a whole category last year. Uh, like I was saying before, investment and collector attention in white champagne skyrocketed last year. There was a double digit growth across the category in terms of values. Um, and Rosé is really starting to kind of come along with the white champagne. Um, what they're, what Rosé has and white champagne didn't necessarily need is more of the, the understanding and the notoriety. So as white champagne's booming in prices, rosé champagne is just now beginning to be more readily consumed and collected. Uh, last year, it was up to 18% of total trades by value on LiveX, rosé champagne was. So it's really just starting to get a foothold and become a really important player in the larger champagne mix. Um, and we'll, we'll dive in in a second for all the wines in this collection. But one of the wines featured in this collection is the 2012 uh, Cristal Rosé. And that wine was the number one wine, number one champagne traded by value on LiveX of all white or red, uh, white or rosé last year. So that's really exciting. So it's really showing that rosé is starting to get attention. It's starting to come to the limelight. And while white champagne really had a year last year, there's a lot of room for growth in the rosé department as attention continues to grow. Uh, it's gaining a lot of traction in the U.S. with uh trades last year, actually purchases last year up 200 plus percent in the United States of Rosé Champagne. So there's a lot of momentum behind it and it's really well poised to kind of follow this uh, progress and excitement that the white champagne has uh, paved the way for in 2021. 
Yeah, that's really awesome, Billy. This is a collection I'm personally really excited about. Um, and I noticed a few kind of uh, different things when looking at the collection page. Um, one was the variety of um, bo bottle sizes. We have several 750s as well as Magnums, uh, one and a half liter bottles um, of the Cristal Rosé. Can, can you tell us a little bit about why we included two different size formats? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess even taking one step back, I'll quickly outline the wines and the collections. So we have um, Louis Roederer's Cristal Rosé 2012, both in 750 mil and 100 or 1500 Magnum formats. And we also have the Louis Roederer Cristal Vinotech Rosé, which is a special bottling of their rosé from the 99 vintage, both in Magnum as well as 750 mil. And then the collections rounded out with uh, Paul Roger, um, Rosé Brut Vintage 2002, as well as Charles Heidzik, um, Rosé Millesime um, 2008 as well. So the reason why we have two wines, both in 750 mill milliliters and 1500, is that champagne magnums are valued um, very highly in the collector community. And, and part of this is because um, just like in other other wines, you know, the, the wine develops a little bit in bottle. Um, it continues to develop nice and slowly. But the other piece is the freshness and the acid. So what what really makes champagne special is the freshness, the bubbles, um, and the balance between that that bright, fresh acidity and the fruit. And in magnums, that tends to last longer in these bottles, and it tends to develop beautifully in the larger format, more so than and still wines. It's really important. So I was actually uh, speaking with one of our advisors, a merchant in the UK uh, yesterday, and we were discussing the, the premium that Magnums from uh, Champagne typically garner. And it's it's on the magnitude of 20 to 30% on average. Um, so if you, if you were to multiply, you know, say a 750 mil by two, you would think that would equal the price of a Magnum, but that's not the case. The Magnum has a, a premium put on it that 20, 20% plus just due to the, the unique way that it develops in the bottle, the wine develops and, and the way it maintains the freshness and um, gets the beauty of the vintage for longer. So it's really interesting to think about. Yeah. And on the retail market, uh, Magnums are typically uh, priced higher than 750s uh, in excess of, you know, how you said, just uh, multiplying the price by two. Um, and that's because of the way that the Magnums have to be bottled. That's right. Um, it's not, it's not just that it, it's the culmination. Like I was just kind of saying it, it retains and its freshness and develops, it retains bubbles, freshness and develops better as well. So there is more cost in bottling. Um, there is better development, but also when you think about, um, Champagne as well. It's typically a celebration wine. Um, and it's also, you know, just for, for major events. So you're also more likely to have people desire a magnum of champagne for a certain occasion um, than you might for maybe a, a larger bottle of red or, or white um, as well. So there's a bunch of things between demand, wine development, and also just, you know, actually making the wine and bottling it um, as well. Yeah, and the the like culture and mystique of champagne definitely lends itself to walking into a room with an oversized bottle, right, and being able to pour around for folks. Um, you know, just you're you're always the the life of the party if you walk in with with a magnum or or larger size um, of champagne. So that definitely adds to kind of the the essence of like what what champagne culture is. For sure. For um, sure. When I was when we were there this um, past week in France, uh, we got to visit Maison Runart in um, Champagne, and everything about the house and and the other houses in uh, Champagne houses in the area, it was just all um, big, opulent, um, kind of celebratory um, culture in the area. Uh, when we went to Runart, we uh, there was in the cave tour and the tour we did of the estate there was a lot of focus on um, their connection with the art community. There were all these, uh, you know, uh, art installations within the house there. And um, even an, an art, a large moving art installation down deep, you know, 38 meters down in the caves um, underneath the chateau. So that was 
you know, it d- definitely underscored for me kind of the, like I said, the essence and mystique of champagne, which I think kind of relates to the, uh, you know, extra value that people place on large format champagne. Yeah, that's awesome. I, um, fun fact, uh, the Ruinart or Thierry Ruinart, who was the founder, he eventually got to be called Dom. I think it's an honorary title. Um, they created the first, I guess, champagne house completely dedicated to sparkling wine in 1729. So that's a, a fun fact for you. Yeah. And they showed us, they had, um, um, the original, um, artwork, uh, advertising artwork for champagne um that they had made um out of the house there and i forget the year but um i guess would have been the mid late 1800s is that right or earlier than that it it depends what it was really after so 1729 was when the their specific house was created just to just to sell sparkling wine um so but but that said it also brings up an interesting point is that when i say dedicated sparkling there were still wines made in champagne for years and years. And then the sparkling started happening. Um, this was kind of due to when the grapes are harvested in champagne, they would start fermenting. And, and then sometimes it'd be so cold during the winters there that when they would bottle the wines, it wasn't completely done fermenting and the wines would warm up and then they would get kind of these, these bubbles in them. So for a really long time, champagne wine producers were kind of, confused and annoyed by the bubbles and it wasn't really embraced really until more like the 1800s so it was kind of interesting that ruin art was really a trailblazer and saying like we're going to focus on sparkling and make good ones um and they were kind of ahead of the curve there whereas everybody else was kind of making sparkling and still wines and and trying to work through because one of the main issues back in the day was the glass wasn't strong enough until um partway through the 1800s that bottles would explode regularly if they didn't have the right uh you know, kind of dosage, um, or is it the tirage, but basically the, the amount of, uh, part of the secondary fermentation, if it was made with too many atmospheres of pressure, the bottles would just explode. Um, one book I was reading said people were walking around with like fencing helmets sometimes when they would tour champagne. (laughs) (laughs) So just in case glass exploded. (laughs) Yeah, I was, I I was all mixed up on my dates, but you're right. It was uh, early. Early, um, early and mid 1700s that there's advertisements that I was mentioning. Um, the tour guide when we were at Runart um, said that that advertisement uh, for champagne um, from the, the Chateau there was uh, it's recorded as one of the first, if not the first consumer advertisement as we know it um, across any segment. So that was really interesting that that kind of culture of uh, consumer directed advertising artwork might have started there at Runart. Yeah, and that's become such a fixture across champagne as a whole. Everybody's, you know, seen these. I would say champagne probably advertises more for their their general brand in their wines than any any other region in the world that I can think of. Yeah, that, that's definitely probably true. I mean, think of like if you were going to see a wine ad in New York City, I, I would I would think of brands like um, Moet and Cristal, and you know, uh, that's kind of what comes to mind. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like I said before, this collection is only a, a thousand shares. It's going to go fast. It just launched this morning. So uh, make sure you grab some of your shares. Last time our uh, champagne collection sold out, the, the the one in July, actually, our original one, sold out very quickly. And that was um, basically double the size. So be sure to get in as soon as you can and and get your shares. Yeah. I'm Like I said, I'm really excited about this collection also, Billy. But we do have two other collections uh, still live right now on the platform. Maybe you could give us a status update on those and and just where we're at with uh, selling through those collections. Yeah. So we have the 2010 decade collection that launched just last week. Uh, That is down to just about under a thousand shares at the time of recording, which is really exciting. It's about halfway gone. And then the Piemonte collection has a little over a third of the shares left as well. So I definitely, both of those are $50 a share. They're steals, the top wines from each region. I think uh, the interesting part there is the Piemonte and the La Pen alone, each of those collections um, in those wines, in each of those collections, the Monfortino and um, the Piemonte and the La Pen in uh, the best decade, 
the 2010 decade. Um, those are both like four to five thousand dollars minimum, basically a bottle anyway. So it's really exciting to be able to get a piece of a collection with those wines included for only 50 bucks. Um, on that note, let's talk about our last week a little bit quickly here. You were traveling, I was traveling. Uh, what was your you've touched on your trip a little bit, but what was your favorite part of France while you were there? Ooh. Yeah, we got to between France and Switzerland, we got to see, I think, 14 cities um, along the eastern eastern side of France, down through Champagne, through Alsace, where they make a lot of excellent Riesling um, up into the Alps. And then we kind of finished our trip through Burgundy. And I think that Burgundy was maybe my favorite region. Um, there were a lot of great things about the other regions. And obviously, Champagne was excellent, too. But um, Burgundy, just the... Uh, when, when you're driving through the, you know, national, national highway uh, through Burgundy, um, it's just so clear when you look at the geography, um, uh, just the, the way that the vineyards are laid out and uh, the designation uh, between classifications. Um, when you think about Premier Cru, Grand Cru, um, it's just it's really clear on the ground level, um, the impact that geography has on these vineyards. So that was one really cool aspect of visiting Burgundy. Um, the other was just the proximity to Dijon, which is um, the closest large city to the region. And we got to go in there a little bit, had some excellent food and wine um, in the city. It's a great city bustling around and a lot of um, really excellent architecture and history, but the wine experience in, in Burgundy and in, in Dijon was just top notch. Um, had two great tastings and tours there as well. So nice. Yeah, I've heard Dijon is one of the um culinary capitals of Europe. Uh, so that's exciting. And then yeah, I've also I've, I've still have yet to make it to Burgundy. I'm excited to, but yeah, I've heard that Route Nationale, basically like one side of the Route Nationale is where all the Premier crew and Grand crew will be, at least up especially in the Cote de Nuit. And then if you go across the street for the most part, those are where you get down to the the village and the the general burgundy one so that's kind of cool to be able to see one side versus the other yeah and the the village I, th I think um it you are right on the i guess the maybe eastern side i guess it is of the road is mainly village and then on the western side there's maybe one uh, i don't know maybe like three blocks of in your blocks of village and then like you said as the hill starts to slope up you get premier crew and grand crew and um, getting to go to Domaine de la Romani Conti, the, the vineyards there, um, and <laughs> get a photograph right outside the, the kind of gate. It's, you know, uh, there's no markings uh, for DRC. It's just kind of a, a gated chateau. And then the vineyards, obviously, um, that slope up into the hill or against the bottom of the hill. And it was really cool to go to that site. It's kind of one of the one of the three maybe um, uh, like meccas for the wine world, right? Um, maybe also uh, Petrus, and I don't know. I said three because I was leaving another spot open for a contender, but um, I would say Hermitage is up there as well. Hermitage, okay. So Hermitage, Petrus, and then um, Von Romani and Romani Conti and Latash. Those vineyards were, yeah, definitely special to be there. Yeah, no, that's pretty iconic. Um, cool. Well, then I'll share a little bit about my travels last week. Last week, um. Nick and I were in New York for Vin Expo, uh, which was exciting. Um, the first Vint wine conference presence. And we got to uh, meet with a bunch of interesting producers. I sat through a couple master classes, um, got to sit down with uh, Mary Gorman and MW, uh, who actually had just presented a master class on um, Cru Bourgeois wines. Uh, we, had a, we had a great conversation. She'll hopefully be coming on uh, to do some webinars and be on the podcast down the line too. So that was, that was exciting. Um, yeah, no, she's, she's so nice. She had full of so much information. Um, she teaches some the WSET diploma courses. So I got to pick her brain about that and how to approach the master if I am lucky enough to pass these tests. So that was exciting. Um, and then uh, I would say the other piece, I guess, is a master class that I referenced kind of earlier. I sat through two of them. One was on Cru Bourgeois, but one was on Chilean wines. And that was a really interesting class just to kind of sit through and think about how long of a country Chile is, but also 
the different growing regions, even west to east. So they have the Andes Mountains on one side, the ocean on the other side, and then there's like this little middle valley. So I, I kind of encourage everyone to just kind of go dive in and check out Chilean wines because we we tasted a bunch of really interesting things from uh, a Chardonnay that was grown in the Atacama Desert um, up in the north to some Carmenere that was grown in Colchagua and some other regions, and then a bunch of um, blends of Cabernet and with some Carmenere mixed in and some Merlot. And it's a really interesting country. And we had a, they had a couple of winemakers there actually sharing these really small plot um, wines that had been vinified for a long time. And uh, it was really interesting just to taste the range and the, the quality of Chilean wines is continues to, to really impress. Um, and then this week also, I was able to taste a, a Pais, uh, P-A-I-S, which is, Technically, the grape Listan Prieto, which was brought over by the Spanish when they came um, and kind of colonized both like Mexico and South America. And it's an ancient grape in terms of, I guess, the North America. It's one of the oldest grape varieties that's been used to make wine here. Um, and it's, it's interesting. It's starting to make a comeback. It, it kind of had been known originally back in the day. It was grown for high volume and kind of known for making like insipid kind of not too flavorful wines, but now people are really kind of trying to revive it and make it into some really interesting, they're, they're very approachable and they're never going to be a huge body, but they're, they're really interesting kind of drinkable wines. Perfect for like a chilled red. So I would definitely keep an eye out for those as well, but ex- look into Chilean wines as a whole. They're really, they're really on the upslope. That, that just confirms um, my, I've, I've talked about uh, going down to visit Chile and for, for a while now. And so that definitely confirms um, <laughs> my interest in going down to see what they're doing as far as food and wine likewise yeah i'm trying to, to finagle a a new year's trip down there next year so we can be there in the oh, summer great. Time. yeah that's awesome well cool well that's uh our main topics for today let's uh transition on over to um andrew shirley and knight frank's wealth report yeah great fantastic to be with you brady fantastic to um be chatting billy again thanks you know thanks for joining us we'd Love to hear about more about Knight Frank, about the Wealth Report and its current iteration and, and your role there. Um, yeah, thanks for that, Brady. I mean, Knight Frank is the world's leading independent, privately owned real estate business. So we sell amazing houses, help people invest in commercial real estate, value it, sell it, buy it, consult on it. So we're pretty sort of full, full service global property property um, business with a focus on high net worth individuals, which was one of the reasons why we created the Wealth Report about 16 years ago, was to help our high net worth clients understand the world that they're living in, the threats, the opportunities, um, what's driving wealth creation around the world. Um, And out of that came the Luxury Investments Index, which is what we're going to talk about most. Um, Today, we realised that um, our clients aren't just interested in buying amazing homes and property of, of us. Obviously, you know, they like to buy art to go on the walls of those properties. They like to fill their wine cellars with amazing wines or they like to have amazing classic cars parked outside um, their houses. So we decided to create this luxury investment index that tracks the value of 10 of those different um, asset classes. So that's really the sort of genesis of um the Wealth Report and the Luxury Investment Index, and I'm lucky enough to edit the Wealth Report and also compile the Luxury Investment Index. So, so what the Wealth Investment Index is really interesting to me. What what are those ten components that go into it? Um, right, well, you're asking now, but we've got wine, watches, art, coins, rare whiskey, handbags, cars, jewelry, coloured diamonds, and furniture. So those are those are our ten different. Is a sort of broad spectrum of what, what what our clients like to own and collect. Yeah, no, that makes sense. No, I just it's nice to get a general landscape of how how broad this really really is, um, inc- including watches and, and the furniture piece too. Is, is always interesting. Um, in your digging in um, overall, how did you really get into this from the Knight Frank side of things? Like, I guess personally, like what is a little bit more of your background, and then how. How have you led into becoming editor of this report? Um, 
Well, I suppose my background before joining Night Frank, I was a journalist, so I sort of know how to string a few sentences together. Um, so when the opportunity to, to edit the Wealth Report came up, and the, you know, the Wealth Report is Night Frank's leading piece of um, thought, thought leadership around the world, I mean, I jumped at the the chance to sort of stamp stamp my impression on on the report, and I've tried to sort of broaden it out beyond property because we know that our clients aren't just interested in property they, there's more to their lives and their aspirations and interests than that so really what i wanted to make the report do is show that we understand you know our client broader broader interests and they are absolutely fascinated in um you know these objects of desire these luxury investments and you know who wouldn't want to write about amazing classic cars or fine wine or interesting watches or all that kind of that kind of stuff and you know one of the latest editions has been rare rare whiskey so i mean it's it's just so fascinating to write about and as a journalist it's you know it's an amazing opportunity to cover these you know these fascinating asset classes and is is there a level of um kind of ongoing analysis and and data collection that goes into uh whether or not you might add or subtract a particular asset from the index has has it happened in the past that you've um either added or removed um, an asset or has it been the same 10 since you started uh, the index no no it's a great it's a great question brady and yes we have we have taken things out we used to have stamps in the index for example but then you know we struggled to get robust 10-year um, data for stamps and that's the key thing any asset class that's in the index i need to have at least 10 years of data that i can say that i am um, trust so we took out we took out stamps for example then it became apparent that you know rare whiskey was becoming this really hot um, asset class, particularly in China. A lot, a lot of my colleagues were saying their clients were collecting rare whiskey. And once I got a decent data set that had ten years worth of data for rare whiskey, then we decided to include that um, into the index, and that's been a real, real hit. A lot of people are interested in rare whiskey. And then the latest one was um, these sort of Hermes collectible handbags again a lot of our clients were interested in that we got a good data set for for that asset class so we decided to put handbag handbags in I mean, it doesn't have to be 10 but i quite like having sort of 10 asset classes to track it's a nice nice round um number what we do to get our overall index um it's an average of the performance of those 10 different asset classes but we kind of weight it so for example art because more more people collect art than say colored diamonds Art is weighted more heavily, so we, you know, we've we've done some survey work on what our clients collect, um, and the more popular um, investment classes contribute more more to the um, overall Night Frank luxury luxury investment index um, itself. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to get a little bit more of that nuance. That makes a lot of sense because the the sheer dollars traded or volume of elements traded, I guess, varies greatly between the categories. Um, it is interesting that the Knight Frank report is actually something that our founders, Nick and Patrick, referenced when they're their early days of you know identifying wine as an asset class. And is it something worth pursuing in terms of building a company around? Um, I remember when I first joined, it was actually one of the first pieces of like <laughs> research. Nick was like, get familiar with the category. Here's the Knight Frank report. So excellent. Um, <laughs> Great to hear. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm excited. Let's uh, dive into this this year's report. Um, is there any I mean, we we can talk about the the elephant in the room, I guess, wine in general. But um, what what were some trends you saw from twenty twenty one, from twenty twenty, and before that? I think the overall, the main theme that we've seen in this year's wealth report um, is, despite COVID, or maybe even because of COVID, anybody who owned a sort of tangible asset um, in twenty twenty one has done has done pretty well. Wealth create wealth creation rose around the world. The value of prime property around the world which is obviously our sort of raison d'etre increased and the same the same can be said for our luxury investment um index over overall it was up nine percent in 2021 which is the strongest performance um since since we created it about eight eight or so years years ago we saw really strong double digit um growth for a couple of the asset classes you'll be pleased to know that actually wine wine Jointly with watches was the um, they were the top performing assets this year, up on average 16 percent. And then we had um, you know art coming in in third place with growth of thirteen 
13%, all of the different asset classes actually actually rose. So if you were lucky enough to own a wine collection, an art collection, or you know, a collection of Rolex watches, you, you'll have seen the value of those increase last year. So in general, it was a really strong performance um, for, for the um, luxury investment index, which I think is reflected across any sort of tangible asset class um, at the moment in 2021. They all all did all did very, very well. Well, number one, it's great that wine um, performed well. Uh, we we had an inkling it was going to be up there this year, but we didn't know it would be a top performer and, until we got the report. Um, looking at the, the report, I love all the, the graphics you guys have on one of the graphics that's kind of like the, the growth over the year. Um, and whiskeys, I noticed, was like enormous compared to some of the other ones. What 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 are those like general graphs? Um, and, what, and what was that gauging really whiskey compared to the rest? Um, yeah, so we track the performance of these different asset classes over two periods, 12 month, 12 month period, and then over the longer term. So we look back over the past um, 10 years. And if you're looking back over the past 10 years, rare whiskey, um, according to the index that was compiled, compiled for us by a sort of rare whiskey specialist, has clearly been the, the, the top performer over the past um, 10 years, growth of over 400 um, percent. It's I mean, last year it was 9 percent. So still is pretty strong. Um, performance but in some of the previous years we've you know we've seen way beyond double digit growth for rare rare whiskey and it's you know there's just not so much rare whiskey kicking around as there is wine i mean there's you know there's a lot of wine wine that you can that you can you can buy but rare whiskey because it's so old because it's been produced in more limited quantities there's not that much of it so when a whole sort of group of people decide they're going to start collecting collecting whiskey just the supply and demand equation just pushes pushes the values up and that happens over the past 10 years really 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 quickly so that's that's why you see that big peak on our charts for rare whiskey over the past 10 years that makes a lot of sense yeah we it's kind of that growth along with the continued demand um, is one of the reasons we also 20 percent of our collections is whiskey as well so it, it's interesting to see that kind of i'm happy it's in your index and coming to the forefront <laughs> Um, and good to see the momentum continued through 2021. And, and just curious, um, Andrew, and just in terms of maybe like anecdotal data conversations that you might have um, with folks in your networks um, or when you're doing data collecting, in the conversations that you're having, do you see the same amount of um, like excitement around just say whiskey or wine being expressed as we do actually in the numbers when we think about uh, like value traded and things like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think they're still both very strong asset classes for our clients. I mean, I think perhaps we've we've seen peak rare rare whiskey, you know, the, the real sort of frothy period when a lot more people were starting to collect it. I mean, it's still performing really, really strongly. Um, but I, I think we've probably seen that period of really exuberant um, growth. It's now going to be, you know, perhaps you know, maybe more serious. Long, longer term collectors in the market might settle down um, a little bit, but I mean, you know, last year nine percent growth wasn't to be wasn't to be um, sniffed at. But I mean, wine is like art; it's one of those perennial things that you know the vast majority of our clients will have an art collection, and most of them will drink wine. So you've got that sort of really robust um, depth to the to the um, to the market, and you know, more people are looking at. It potentially as an investment rather than just buying it to buying it to drink i mean some of these indices become slightly self-fulfilling the more you talk about something as an investment the more people are interested in interested in um buying it um perhaps beyond its sort of wider appeal although it's, it's worth saying we do as part of the wealth report do what we call our attitude survey of our of wealth advisors around the world talking about their clients we do ask why do people collect these things and on average, globally, people's the majority of people are still collecting these things for joy of joy of ownership. Although investment potential is is running quite a close um, quite close second at the moment. Yeah, at, at four hundred percent, you said ten year growth. Uh, it would it would have to start to run a close second to, <laughs> to <laughs> that's so. part that would have to be part of the joy of collecting. Um, yeah, and about you know about twenty percent of our offerings at Vint. Um, you know, our, our plans right now to, to be com comprised of whiskey. And, you know, one of the things that, 
we talk about often is when we think about wine and whiskey in comparison to one another, and maybe you can talk about uh, comparisons that you've seen in the report, but um, you know, wine continues to age and the the best wines improve by that. I mean, in the bottle, right. Whereas whiskeys don't, they, they only improve in, in cask. So it's, it's a really interesting and unique um, kind of demand pressure that's put on wine in that, you know, as supply drops and people drink it, the physical product is also getting better, which isn't the case with bottled whiskey, at least obviously cask whiskey. Um, but yeah, those are two extremely interesting asset classes. And maybe you can dive in a little bit and talk about um, in this iteration of the report, um, kind of comparing and contrasting and sharing highlights of both wine and whiskey conversely. Um, yeah, I think one one thing you always have to be careful about when you look at these figures is you have to see what they're actually tracking. So, for example, our rare whiskey index um, purely tracks the value of rare bottles of um, whiskey. It's not looking at casks or anything um, like that. So you, you, just, you kind of just have to bear have to bear that um, bear that in mind. So you know a lot of the, the whiskey. The whiskey market's quite interesting because I think a lot of it is around provenance, a lot of it is around brand and obviously um, rarity. Um, you know, and some of these expressions of whiskey haven't necessarily actually been be, been tasted in a million dollars a bottle or whatever they fetch these days. It, maybe it's unlikely that they they will, whereas I think the wine market is much more nuanced you are relying more on the sort of recommendations and the sort of gradings from wine experts to give that you know to give that specific vintages their their um their value aren't you so there's a i wouldn't say there's not connoisseurship in rare whiskey market because there is but i think there's a lot more of it um perhaps in the in the wine in the wine sector you you know, you do you do rely more on these ratings and these gradings by by the wine experts, and obviously it's a lot more. The quality varies, doesn't it? Depending on the climate, you can have good years, you can have bad years for right. wine. But really, there's there's not so much that influences the rare whiskey market. I mean, you what goes into it is quite a controlled process, but it's you know it's the provenance, it's the rarity, it, it, it's branding you know the skill of the you know the maltster or the, the the blender but you kind of know a bit what you're getting and as you say once it's in the bottle it's in the, it's in the bottle it's not really going to um change but you know the wine market is much more nuanced which is probably why you need much better advice right. when you're sort of considering investing investing in it and you just need to know know the market and know the fact that maybe there was a drought in burgundy last year and there weren't so many burgundy grapes so that means your romney de conti or whatever is going to be much more valuable for this for this um vintage i think they are you drink both of them but i think the wine and the rare whiskey markets are very different in my in my view it's much harder to sum up sum up the wine market um in a few in a few paragraphs which is what we have to do in the um wealth report because it's just you know there's so many different geographies producing so many different sorts of wine so many different climatic um yeah. conditions so it's it's hard to describe the wine market in a, in a couple of a um, couple of sentences really yeah i think that's a really interesting point because the the rare whiskies some of them are very old but they're not valued because of they came from a special year maybe they did have a certain distiller uh, maybe there were certain stills that were still in use at the time but it's more just their pure age rather you know certain bottles of wine whether it be like 82 bordeaux or even older in like the 40s they're valued because of the vintage and their age but it's more if you have to get it from that specific year you can't just get any 80 year old bottle of you know burgundy and say it's going to be great um i think that's an important nuance but the other weird part on the whiskey side is there are, for for famous wine regions, the grapes from the general vineyards, for the most part, are going to continue to be grown and produced. Maybe the winemaker will change. Maybe the producer who owns the vineyard will change. But like for Kurosawa, for example, in a Japanese whiskey um, example, there is 
you know, the, their distillery closed and it'll never open again. So that's something that's like will happen in the whiskey side of things, which pro- probably, I mean, it might happen on the wine side. There are some wines that'll never be made again, but that's another, another interesting difference. Um, that to your point is, is because whiskey is so process driven and not as tied to place as much. Uh, yeah, I mean, you get these sort of what they call the Scottish ghost distilleries, sort of distilleries that have stopped producing decades ago, but there's still the casks of whiskey um, that were produced and that have been matured, maturing and are now ready to sell. And those kinds of um, casks from ghost distilleries, you know, will have a little bit of a, a bit of a premium. And I think there's a certain romance about the um, rare whiskey market that appeals to um, people, you know, the Highlands of Scotland, the malts, the peats, all of those sorts of those sorts of um, things. I think, to a certain extent, collecting rare whiskies is a little bit like collecting things like stamps or coins. People collect them because they like to have the collection. So they'll have every sort of Macallan from different different eras. They'll have all of the special editions. They like to build up a really complete collection, which I don't think is quite the same for you know the wine market. You wouldn't buy nineteen. 80 bottle of some vintage that was or wine that wasn't any good you just wouldn't want it would you but people like to have the full set of i mean i think there's a japanese set of whiskey based around playing cards or something like that it's quite it's quite famous and if you've got a full set of all the different playing cards on the whiskey labels it's it's quite um rare and people will buy limited edition whiskey as big as a famous artist has done the label or something um like that which i don't think you would get in wine you you know you have to have a good product in the bottle it doesn't matter if it's got a fancy fancy label you know you've, you've got to have the um you've got to have the product to back it but i'm not sure that's always the case um with whiskey people just like collecting the bottles to have the full set um of, you know a special edition of um, a particular rare whiskey right those are like the two kind of um sides of the scale right it's like collectability um, or maybe like rarity and collectability and also like consumability um, or, you know, the quality like when uh, of the actual product itself. And definitely uh, whiskey, I think summarize whiskey's weighting maybe more towards rarity and collectability um, like as a kind of a token asset, right? Versus um, when you think about wine as, you know, it, like you said, you just if it's 1980X and it's, you know, wasn't a good year um and doesn't have great ratings i'll probably just pass on it i'll you know I'll buy yeah, why it would you want it yeah exactly um because which i think is really you know unique in wine is that it's kind of always maintained this tradition of wine is meant to be shared it's meant to be um drunk and consumed um which yeah i think is um you know i don't i don't know if you can say positive or negative about it but it's um it, it's certainly nice that still maintain the tradition of um, you know, you buy it to drink, you you buy it to enjoy it, um, and not just to hold it on a shelf. It does always seem a shame that you know you do have some people who collect it, and the wet, the wine never leaves a bonded warehouse. It just it just stays there and gets passed from one collector um, to another. It's you, you always hope that at the end of the day, someone's going to be um, drinking it and then and enjoying it. Yeah, and that's that's part of why like. Uh, at Vince right now, you know, we are in these early stages of kind of amassing these collections, but part of our mission here is these events and education where we actually try to bring people to learn more about the regions. Maybe they're tasting second wines that they can drink on a regular basis and they're learning more about these wines. And then down the line, as we look to um, liquidate these, um, I guess, sellers we have, we're going to be having, um, we're going to be, that's that's part of our, our goal there is to make sure the end consumer, whether we were selling to hospitality or retailers, making sure that basically we've kept these wines in proper shape, but that they're actually reaching the market and, and being consumed. I actually had somebody recently ask me, she's like, uh, I had somebody at a restaurant, like sommelier asked, like, why would you want to work for that? That's basically saying that we're not going to be able to get any of these wines ever because they're all just going to be held by like investment companies now and nobody's ever going to drink them. And, and that's something we certainly want to make sure we we don't have happen um and we were able to you know work with all of our partners to to not just leave these things to go bad well, <laughs> well hopefully you bad. also get the chance to sample the wines before you um, decide which ones you're going to buy for your um, your portfolios yeah yeah we we right now a lot of the initial collections we rely on a lot of our partners overseas who have been able to vet and you know obviously provenance is of utmost so much of these come from 
directly from Chateau to our partners to us. But um, yeah, we're, we're working on getting to taste as many of them as, as we can. And unfortunately, we can't taste the whiskeys to your point earlier, but uh, you know, we, we would like to be able to. Um, one other side note, um, back to the playing card thing. Um, I, I recently was listening to a podcast as we were prepping for our Karazawa collection and somebody, um, I can't remember which one it was, but they were saying they went to a party and right when the, the playing cards first came out and a guy had a party where he had all all of the bottles and they all had some at that party just for just for fun. And that was before they were worth anything. So the guy's like, <laughs> excellent. looking back now, I wish, to, <laughs> you know, that guy's probably kicking himself for having that party, but uh, he was like, it was, it was a unique experience. So. Well, there's a story of a very rare Macallan, the one that um, makes over a million dollars when it comes up for Ox. I think there's only 26 or 28 bottles, but apparently one was on a shelf in Japan during an earthquake and the shelf vibrated and the whiskey bottle fell off. So um, that, that was a lot of money down the drain. But obviously, when you lose a bottle, it makes the rest of them even more, even more valuable. True. But that's the other point about the difference between whiskey and, and wine, the opacity when when these things come out about how many of these bottles exist, I mean, eventually distillers are prominently saying it now, but you don't know how many of these old casks still exist, what their fill level is in those casks, like how much liquid is actually left. So it's really interesting. I think there's going to be more and more transparency brought to the whiskey market, which I think will bring more attention. It might bring a little less speculation, but it'll bring more attention and um, proper detail, I guess, to actual pricing. Um, going back to this year's wealth report, was there anything that surprised you that you saw that you weren't expecting this year? Um, well, in terms of luxury collectibles, I think I was surprised by how fast the NFT, the non-fungible token sort of art market had um, increased. We, we knew it was coming when that work of art by Beeple sold um, last year for over 60 million US dollars. But I was I was slightly shocked by the sheer volume of this NFT um, art market i mean you know there's an estimated 25 billion us dollars or so of this nft art that was created um in 2021 which is staggering when you when you, you look at the sort of the total art market um art and antiques and that kind of thing is ballpark around 50 billion us dollars a year and then you've got this new asset class in one year 25 billion us dollars so i was quite surprised that um the nft market had taken off quite so quickly in um in such 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 volumes in such a short um amount of time i mean people have been turning everything into nfts um that they can get their hands on i think there's a sort of few rare whiskey editions where people have tried to link them to nfts but i think that was what that was what surprised me just the how quickly that market had, had taken off yeah i would say Oh, Brady, go ahead. I, was, I just wonder, you know, when we think about just the underlying technology of digital custody, digital ownership, um, provenance, back to kind of some earlier um, comments that we had here uh, about wine and whiskey. Um, I just wonder, you know, as we kind of get over the hump of um, excitement about NFTs, um, what you know, when we think about high net worth individuals and, and luxury assets, how much that underlying technology continues to play a role um, and whether or not that trend will kind of dip a ton and then level out or will can you continue kind of up and to the right just based on um, just like the quality of the underlying technology? I mean, I think we'll see, you know, blockchain technology, NFTs used more to sort of certify provenance so it will be kind of a useful underlying technology and i think that will be across all, all sectors luxury investments real estate you know blockchain will just be there in the um background sort of registering sales and sort of helping you know markets root out forgeries and all that kind of thing so you know it's um, going to be really helpful technology particularly in markets like rare whiskey and wine where you you know you are vulnerable to 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 forgeries and sometimes it's you know it's hard for even experts to to weed weed those out i mean in terms of the actual market for what we call nft art or nft collectibles i mean it's you know my 
my 14 year old son thinks he can make money buying and selling these nfts and then he said dad i bought um an nft of a, of a marvel comic and i said well how many of them were there he said oh, there's only twenty thousand. it was a limited edition i'm saying no no twenty thousand is not a limited edition i mean so you know people are trying to redefine the market and redefine rarity but you know just because it's an exciting new technology it's you know you can't get beyond the fundamentals it's got to have some kind of decent provenance it's got to have some kind of limited additional rarity rarity values um you know know, i'm not completely old and fuddy-duddy i'm not going to say that just because they're not tangible that there's no future for nfts but i think at some point the market you know, not the normal rules of a market will have to reassert themselves. People can't just keep spending money on something that's a not rare and b could have even been generated by an algorithm on a um, on a computer. I mean, ten years down the line, you know, who's going to want to buy a twenty thousandth edition of something that you don't even know who the who the um, artist was? I mean, whenever. You know, whenever you get new art trends like, you know, the new British art, Brit artist like Tracy Emmons, she sold, you know, like an unmade, disgusting bed. And everyone says, well, that's not art, but it's stood the test of time and people still pay lots of money for that sort of temporary art. And I think it will be the same for NFTs. A lot of people will will say they have no value whatsoever. But I think there, there will be value, but for carefully curated artists who put lot of thought into the nft art that they that they create and they build up a reputation i think you know when it comes to stuff that's churned out in the 20,000s or whatever i don't see that that could ever be considered a collectible asset class that's appealing to people who've got too much time on their hands spend too much time on computers possibly bitcoin enthusiasts who think that everything digital is going to turn to gold but actually it can't it can't all turn to gold just because of the you know the rules of supply supply and demand i wonder how how, i wonder how generational uh some of that is too you know billy and i were kind of furring our brow together at furniture being included um in the index and you know i i i you know enjoy roaming through antique stores and have some older like furniture pieces and and things like that but i i was just kind of thinking about the as you're talking about nfts and the folks who are on shelling out a lot of money for um, digital art, you know, they likely have no interest whatsoever in, you know, old wardrobe and, 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 and armoires. Right. Um, so I wonder how much of it too is ends up being, um, you know, kind of ebbs and flows generationally and whether or not we'll see a peak here. And then, you know, with Billy and I's kids, NFTs, why did you guys do that? And then it comes back around. Um, yeah. Just, I don't have an answer, <laughs> but um yeah, I mean, it's interesting you talk about furniture because I said earlier, you know, you've got to look at actually what the what the index is tracking. And we actually took out the sort of brown furniture aspect of it, the armoires or, you know, the the, the sideboards because there was just no market for mm. them. So now our furniture index is tracking more um, contemporary and um, sort of 20th, 20th century furniture that almost looks a little bit... Um, like art i mean in the wealth report this year we've included um a piece by the designer one hour actually it was from 1993 and it's a sofa that kind of doesn't look comfortable enough to um sit on but it set a world record when it sold for 1.2 million pounds because you know he's a well-known designer and it it's a kind of funky looking sofa that almost looks like it's going to be a work of art um in your living room so yeah you know furniture is a huge market and the, you know if if you've got an antique table unless it's from one of the very very best antique makers you know it's probably not going up um in value you know it's probably gonna you probably pay more for something from ikea or something like that that you've got to build build mm-hmm. your um build yourself whether, whether it comes back in the future i i don't know but there's just an awful lot of brown furniture <laughs> kicking yeah kicking around in all of those sort of flea markets and sales that you know you might um, you might go and look at yeah that uh, that explains a lot i was actually asking grady like i've going back to our antiques roadshow to show here in the u.s often like they'll have 
an early 1800s, you know, wooden armoire. And they're like, oh, this is a perfect example of the style. I'm like, yeah, but it's like hideous. I don't care if that's worth a lot. Like you'd have to pay for storage. I'm not going to put that in my house. So I would rather have a weird looking couch than <laughs> the 17th century. <laughs> so that makes sense. Well, we've come um, up with a lot of answers today. <laughs> we, <laughs> it's, it seems it's like, uh, you know, it, it just, one depends on interests. And then when you have, um, uh, you know, I, I think with, with these digital assets, like uh, the communication online, whether it's through Twitter and uh, online platforms like Reddit, Discord, where people are able to kind of join in community and shared interest, I think it, uh, you know, raises the floor so much more quickly, right? Because um, there's definitely interest in antique brown furniture still. Um, but are those folks kind of coming together en masse? And, um, you know, buying up whole segments of the market, you know, it might not be possible, like you said, with the amount of um, of those assets out there. Well, I mean, you actually have to physically go to a sale and you have to transport it. Mm-hmm. And you probably have to hand over real cash for it, whereas an NFT, you can sort of do it in your coffee break at work. You're just cruising on your laptop and, you know, you just press a button and you, you've um, bought it. So the actual process of acquiring an NFT art doesn't really involve um, you know the um, the time and the labor or whatever to to acquire certain other assets. So I think there's a you know when it's easier to buy these sorts of things, it you know that encourages more people into the um, into that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, another thing that really surprised me um, or always surprises me um, when I'm compiling, you know, for the wealth report a list of the sort of top auction items is just how much collectors are prepared to pay what seem to be really, really weird things. So, for example, sneakers or trainers worn by famous sports people are attracting huge, huge amounts of money. You know, for example, last year, a pair of Michael Jordan's um, Nike airships sold at auction for you know, one and a half million US dollars. So it's quite staggering how much people will prepare, are prepared to pay for a pair of, you know, sort of a pair of smelly, smelly shoes. So it's really interesting just to see, you know, how much collectors are prepared to pay for their passions. Um, and obviously, you know, Michael Jordan was one of the world's most amazing sports stars. And, you know, people want to buy into that um, celebrity, that, you know, that that skill, I suppose, by just owning a little bit of history, whether that's, you know, a pair of shoes that he wore, wore an, an important um, game. So the sort of just the range of things that people are collecting is growing. And actually, one of the things that we discovered this year is that, you know the average age of high net worth individuals and wealthy. You know it's getting getting lower. There's you know there was quite a significant proportion of people under the age of forty who were self-made um, who were in our wealth index this year, and you know that perhaps reflects the things that they're spending their their money on, whether it's Pokemon cards or sports collectibles, that 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 kind of thing. That the world of luxury assets is becoming much wider. Yeah, I was going to say two things. I think to your note, one on the the furniture, even going back to whiskey and some of the other things, I, I think one use case for NFTs and the actual rarity components, because right now when you make an NFT, you can just bake in rarity elements and you can say this is going to be more rare than this. And then so when you go to a tool like raritytools.com or not rarity tools, rarity.tools, you can kind of you know, see how these NFTs are ranked in terms of perceived rarity. But I think it will be interesting back down the line where if like, say, a distillery or a whiskey person has five casks left and then that's, you know, updated on their rarity for that NFT and you have ownership via that NFT, I think that could be really interesting. Um, But moving on to what you kind of mentioned with the furniture needing to be in one spot, same with, say, these shoes, uh, I think that would be something somebody would probably want to have on display in their apartment. But that brings us to kind of where where we come in. And, you know, the, when you say baseball cards, it reminds me of other collectible companies is that this reggae plus model um, in the U.S. is allowing people to invest in these, maybe have have their passion, um, whether it be like real estate, art, um, in the case of Masterworks here, or like wine with Vint, is to still own these assets without having to manage and take care of them um, and physically you know, move them from place to place. And I think over time that will also be expanded to NFTs and that would be a common use for that. Do you think that's going to expand, I guess, interest in the market as a whole? Like opening it up to everybody, do you think this is something that's like 
really for the wealthy or do you think over time more and more individuals you know like for vint especially like we're we're looking at people really interested in wine they don't know how to get into it do you think there will be kind of a, a learning curve where people are like number one i can get a share of these collectibles and this is why they're important uh, i think it kind of will depend on the asset class i mean i i mean what wine it makes perfect um sense to sort of put your trust in experts to assemble a good portfolio of um wine um and i suppose you know you can if there's a particular wine in the portfolio that fascinates you you can always go and buy it separately and, and drink it just to see just to see what it's um like but if i was looking at something like pokemon cards would i want to buy into a collective fund of pokemon cards or is the pleasure of really having my own collection of cards at home that i can show off to my to my um friends i think it's i think it's going to really depend on the um the asset class to be honest because if you i mean I'm, you know i think i have heard that people are sort of talking about building investment funds based around sneakers um you know, so they'll go out and acquire a load of ten pairs of shoes and stick them in a fund and sell sell shares in that fund. But I think if you're if you're so passionate about sneakers, you probably want to own them and, as you say, display them yourself. But it's a tricky. It's a, whenever an asset class does become popular and you see values rising, you do generally see a fund structure coming up. Yeah, it. I mean, it's like classic cars. There's lots of kind of funds around classic cars, but I think if you're really into classic cars, what's cool about classic cars? Driving it really. You want to have access to to um, to those cars to be able to enjoy them, and that doesn't particularly work very well with a fund structure because letting anybody go and drive those those, those cars isn't um, great. So I really think it depends on the. Um, depends on the asset class to be honest so some make it makes sense to put them into a fund structure Other, others i'm not sure that it, it does to such an extent the the um really popular fractional um asset platform um here rally road um i think understood this early on um because you know with i'm not sure if they do it with each of their collections but with many of their collections they will send out some kind of tangible object um for instance they i know they had like one of the crypto punk nfts on their site uh, fractionalized and they sent out little pins of the the nft it was the little um you know neon haired crypto punk figure um on um, a pin and i know they've sent around figurines and just little kind of trinkets and objects that folks who have um shares in collections can display at their homes so i think they actually you know have kind of done a good job at bridging the gap between fractional ownership and you know not actually quote unquote owning the whole physical asset but also giving something as kind of a token for people to be able to display in their there's, a bit, of, there's a bit of tangibility to it yeah, exactly yeah and they've even set up the museums kind of around uh, the country where you can actually go and see the like the sports car that is fractionally owned you can see that that same car um, they're kind of the pop-up museum so they've kind of done some really interesting things in our space um, with tangibility also building on that though to your point when you mentioned wine is the perfect I, I hadn't really thought about it as much but you do eventually want to see that baseball card whether it be in like a museum setting or you get a small piece of something that represents it it is interesting to think of the level of maintenance and um, I guess upkeep along with acquisition that's needed for some of these assets say you invest in a really high-end baseball card but it's in the proper um, that storage case, and it's basically indestructible in that case. You could have it up um, as long as it's not in, I assume, direct sunlight. Um, it won't fade or anything. So you could have that out, and it's easy to almost like ship or bring with you. But wine, on the other hand, is not something you would you would have it in your cellar anyway, even if you had nice wine. It wouldn't be out prominently displayed until you wanted to share it to drink. Um, so I guess there is a difference between, you know, no matter what, your wine's going to always be in a cellar. So you might as well have experts taking care of it and sourcing it. Whereas, like, when it comes to shoes or a car, that, that is kind of a, a little different 
different um, ballgame. Yeah, you've got to nurture your wine, haven't you? You can't just leave it and hope that it's going to be okay in two decades' time if you haven't looked after it and it's, I know, been vibrated or the temperatures have been wrong. You've kind of destroyed your your asset, haven't you? So actually making sure it's looked after is pretty pretty important when it comes to wine, which is, you know, again, a big difference with whiskey. Unless it falls off your shelf during an earthquake, you it's pretty hard for you to destroy, destroy a bottle of... Um, whiskey because the content inside is is sealed so it will stay pretty much as it as it as it should do regardless of what you do with that bottle and that that goes back to your your point there like the difference in the two things people do want to put those on their shelf they want to have the full collection of the whiskey or they can leave it out so everybody can see it you know whether it be on their mantle their shelves or on their bar cart so that's interesting all right. Well, I know we've uh, we've already kept you longer than we anticipated. Is there is there anything else you want to um, note for this year's wealth report? Otherwise, we um, we really appreciate your time. Um, just encourage people really if they're interested to you know download it and have have a look at some of the um, the amazing sort of luxury asset classes that um, sold last year. We've got cars, we've got coins, we've got even meteorites. Um, this year so there's a whole host of interesting um things to 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 look at so yeah just have a look at the um report follow our index and enjoy collecting i suppose is all i would say awesome where where can um our listeners find the report um online www.nightfrank.com forward slash wealth report it's all there perfect that's easy and it's awesome. free for everybody listening it's it's free it's accessible it's a really interesting report. So I mean, definitely recommend checking it out. And we'll provide a, we'll provide a link in the description of the podcast. So anyone that wants to check it out can go there, but thanks so much, Andrew. We really appreciate uh, your time and just willingness to share and uh, bantering a little bit about uh, collectibles <laughs> in the future, hopefully. So um, go out and buy your baseball cards and, and your sneakers and, and we'll meet up again next year. No, fantastic to chat. Um, Brady, Billy, really always interesting to talk about these asset classes. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vent and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.